X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's Wednesday, May 27th. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. A reminder that democracy never sleeps. We have just a few months to watch a runoff from City Council Position 2 between Loretta Smith and Dan Ryan in August. And then the general election in November, including runoffs for City of Portland Mayor, City Council Position 4, Metro District 5, and Multnomah County Circuit Court, as well as the statewide and congressional races. We'll have it here in the local, and we'll also have it at the Vision 2020 series at xraypod.com. If there's an issue you really want us to cover, if there's a story you really want us to discuss, go ahead and send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Today, back in the day, May 27, 1935, Supreme Court of the United States declared the National Industrial Recovery Act to be unconstitutional in Schechter Poultry versus the United States, the sick chicken case. That ruling found that the U.S. government could regulate interstate commerce, but not intrastate commerce. And it threw out a main component of President Roosevelt's New Deal. This decision was at the height of the Lochner era, during which conservative justices invalidated social welfare legislation, the first year of FDR's first term, during which the court kept throwing out elements of the New Deal. And to put that in some context, if you listen to George Will or Nancy McLean, their recent books both talk about efforts to return to the Lochner era. The Lochner era was laughed and cried about during my law school days, sort of like Plessy versus Ferguson giving way to Brown versus Board of Education. But in their recent books, George Will and Nancy McLean both talk about efforts of conservatives to bring the Lochner era back. Why do I share this? Because the challenge of covering the news, I would argue a flaw in the news, is it too often fails to put stuff into context. We end up being gnats. I don't mean we're small and insignificant. I mean we have short memories. If we're born in the winter, we only know the cold. If we're born in the summer, we only know sunshine. Well, an unprecedented amount of resources has been poured into shaping the federal judiciary over the last 30 years, and winter is coming. Today on The Local, your quick six, a focus on labor's impact in the Oregon primary with labor leader Joe Basler and a post-election interview with Representative Brian Clem from House District 21. That's down in Salem. First up, today's quick six local rundown. The Baker County judge is standing by his ruling. Matthew Shirtcliffe announced that he was not dismissing his preliminary injunction from earlier in the month. He said, I've been elected to stand by my original ruling, will not vacate the May 18th, 2020 order granting preliminary injunctive relief and denying the motion to dismiss. The Supreme Court will now accept further legal briefs until June 2nd. It'll then decide whether to uphold or dismiss Shirtcliffe's preliminary injunction. Governor Brown won her injunction, allowing her executive stay home, save lives order to remain in effect. It's a battle of injunctions. It's a battle of lawyers. The governor argued that Shirtcliffe overstepped his authority and that his legal reasoning was flawed. And guess what? Shirtcliffe is arguing the governor overstepped her authority, that her legal reasoning was flawed. No, you did it. No, you did it. This is the case where the churches brought the lawsuit so that their parishioners could get COVID-19. No, I don't think that's why they did it. The court's direction showed it found the governor had made a serious challenge to the injunction. More on this one to come. U.S. News and other outlets beyond our borders are following the case. Your daily dose of data, the Oregon Health Authority reported 18 new coronavirus cases and one new presumptive case. The state's total number, 3,967. Some good news, or at least neutral news. Officials have reported no new coronavirus-related deaths for the second day in a row. That means we're still standing at 148 confirmed deaths. Washington State has now had 1,050 known deaths and 19,265 confirmed cases. Deschutes County has seen a recent spike in COVID-19 cases. The uptick isn't related to an increase in public gatherings. The spike is related to family get-togethers like barbecues and birthday parties. Happy birthday to you, Deschutes County. 
Clackamas County was allowed to start reopening this past weekend. For businesses in the county, demand for their services was mixed. Let's see how their barbecues and birthdays go. Top 10 percentage increases in cases by zip code as of May 19th. A zip code in Redmond had an 80% increase. Then North Portland 97203, then Ontario 97914 saw a 36% increase. Yamhill County 97128, Milwaukee 97222, South Salem, then Albany, East Portland 97230 at 25.9, Northeast Portland 97211, and Eugene 97401. To be clear, that's not aggregate cases, that's just the percent increase in cases. And the Oregon Employment Department is working at it again, planning to address the unemployment backlog. On Tuesday, they announced Project Focus 100. It's going to address the 38,000 backlogged unemployment claims in the state. The department said it's going to continue to hire new workers and assign professionals on the oldest and most complex cases. From May 29th to June 12th, the agency will increase its outbound calls to resolve claims of people who have been waiting the longest. The Employment Department said it's trying out new ways of contacting people to let them know where the claims are in the system. PDX, that's our airport, has seen a small increase in travelers. It is still down overall and down kind of a lot. As Oregon counties move forward with their reopening plans, the Portland International Airport has seen a small increase in travelers over the last two weeks. But passenger volumes at PDX are still down 92% compared to this time last year. Now, the decrease reached a bottom of nearly 96% in mid-April. I believe percentages are traditionally out of 100. So 92 and 96, that's just about all of them. Portland Public Schools are expecting the pandemic to decrease its projected state funding for the coming year by $58 million. The district's finance department originally forecasted a general fund of $730 million, 5% higher than the current year. Now they project it's going to be closer to $672 million. That's a 2% reduction. The majority of the district's general fund, about $384 million, comes from property taxes. Those are expected to be pretty stable. The next biggest chunk comes from state funding, and that is overwhelmingly income taxes. Those are expected to plummet. This means they're going to lose $40 million from the state school fund. They expect to lose $4 million in funding devoted to career tech programs and other anti-dropout efforts funded by the voter-approved Measure 98. Portland Public Schools anticipates the furlough agreement it reached with its various employee unions, that's mostly OEA and AFT, will plug a $10 million hole in the shortfall. They'll save $9 million by freezing purchasing and hiring. They also hope to get $9 million in federal relief, its share of $31 billion in emergency funding passed by Congress. That still leaves more than $12 million in cuts. That's the equivalent of about 120 teaching positions. The district has to decide what it's going to do about that in the coming weeks. I'd rather just watch Rodney McRae sprint through the outfield wall. OSU researchers are searching Bend's wastewater for COVID-19. As we just said, Deschutes County, that's Bend, has just seen their cases spike. Bend Public Works staff will collect sewage samples the weekend of May 30th to 31st. That's the same time field workers from OSU's Trace COVID-19 project are going to gather samples door-to-door in Bend. Sewer samples will then be compared with swab samples to better detect the virus among symptomatic and asymptomatic carriers. OSU said it has the lab capacity to do the genetic testing with a predicted turnaround time of about a week. University also said that additional sewer surveillance projects are underway in Washington County. Some good news and some good wills. Not only Habitat for Humanity's Restore donation sites, but also some goodwill sites are opening back up, and there are lines of cars backed up around the block. Been closed for a while. People haven't been able to drop their stuff off. I gotta empty my basement. I don't wear a size 12 anymore. This toaster doesn't match my kitchen. I don't have an eBay store. What am I supposed to do with all my old Furbies? At the airport Goodwill, they normally see about 100 people a day. After opening, they saw 1,000 in a day. I have some room in my basement. 
You have a toaster? Anything in a size 12? Where might I find some Furbies? Heads up, they aren't using cash and they aren't assisting with loading. You gotta handle your own Furbies. There's a plan to turn Portland streets into dining and shopping plazas that seems to be gaining traction. Here's the idea. If COVID-19 spreads in close quarters and Portland restaurants are at risk during shutdown, why not just move the dining rooms outside? How far has the plan progressed? Well, transportation planners have detailed plans to remove traffic lanes to create room in the blacktop for restaurant takeout service, outdoor dining, shopping, even barber chairs. Office of City Commissioner Chloe Udaly says the Portland Bureau of Transportation is going to announce formal plans as soon as Thursday. That's tomorrow. Meanwhile, a portion of the Sunnyside neighborhood has launched a campaign to turn two southeast Portland commercial districts into Portland promenades. The plan there is to close several blocks of northeast and southeast 28th Avenue in Kearns and southeast Belmont Street in Sunnyside to allow shopping and dining in the streets. The plan was well received by the Kearns Neighborhood Association. They just asked for a 10 p.m. curfew on street business. If all goes well, Beulah Land or City State Diner could serve drinks and food in the streets at a block party every summer weekend. Dancing in Northeast. And that's today's Quick Six Local Rundown. I also want to give a shout out to our friends at Mississippi Studios and Revolution Hall, nominated for Best of Portland Best Music Venue. They're operated by the same crew. And right now, venues could sure use your help. If you want to vote in Best of Portland, you can also vote for X-Ray. We could sure use your help, too. You can find a link to the voting page at xray.fm. And other things online... Today, that's Wednesday, this evening, for daily listeners of the local, Tim Perry of Ages and Ages and Karina Rep, they're going to be performing at an X-Ray house show. You can watch it on Facebook, on YouTube. You can check it out at xray.fm. Here's Emily Gilland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up, a focus on the impact of labor on the Oregon primary. Joe Basler, Associate Director of AFSME, joined Jefferson Smith post-election with reflections on results. Listen in for races where labor supported candidates and why. Joe, how you doing this morning? Um, uh, I am a, a, a bag of emotions. All right. I, I want to start. My, all over the place. I want to start asking this. One of the things yeah. that uh, labor specializes in is voter turnout is activating its members, sometimes even beyond its members, to make sure that they vote. Was there anything about or what about the coronavirus era made that different this time? Was it pretty much the same operation that you always do or given there oh. weren't canvas? How did how was it different? Oh, I think I think the lack of canvassing. I mean, you, you couldn't go going door to door was shut down. Um, so your whole field operation had to adapt radically. And I think over the last couple of years, I think a lot of campaigns, a lot of field, we've been moving farther away from phones and more towards door-to-door work because people answer the door more often than they answer their phone sometimes. And like having to like swing that back, um, I think anyone, anyone who was participating also noticed the volume of text went ratcheted way up. Um, and uh, a lot of text use the same system and if you opt out of one you opt out of all of them so uh so even the campaigns multiple campaigns use the same text making system at least on the progressive side and so a lot of folks are opting out because they're getting annoyed by all the text and so it really phones you had to adapt 
uh, we adapted, it took a while, but I think in the last month or so, our virtual phone banks uh, were actually going really well, better than actual in-person phone banks, because people were a little bit more engaged than having to go into the basement of AFSCME and make phone calls. They were sitting at home on a Zoom uh, and then making phone calls, but able to jump uh, onto the Zoom and talk to um, talk to an organizer and uh, sort of work through if they had any weird questions. And how are they getting the numbers? Were they just using the voter file for the numbers? Because I was getting texts from candidates that I didn't know, right? And we had inter- we interviewed 65-plus candidates, and somehow still there was a candidate that, uh, that had enough of a campaign that they texted me. How are folks getting the numbers? Well, so the, there is the there is the voter file, uh, and then there's also um, different data firms. Uh, Catalyst, uh, Van, uh, do consumer searches to try to gather up more numbers. And also, I'm sure they do the same thing on the Republican side. I just don't know. Were the inner races, Joe? Where you think that the changed campaign dynamic? Particularly, we talked. You, you can, if you want to mention city, you know, county metro races. Of course, that's fine too. We talked some about those. We have yet. We're just starting to talk now about the legislative races and the statewide races. Any candidates that you think were particularly advantaged or disadvantaged by this different campaign context? I think. I think if you look across the board, I think. I think the pandemic actually probably helped not all incumbents, but a couple of notable ones. But. Uh, a lot of the legislative races, at least, I think that there was a, some upstart candidates who thought they were going to be able to canvas their way to victory, and then, then that avenue got shut down. Uh, they were unable to sort of figure out a way to reach voters. But then you had some candidates who really embraced uh, new technology and really fought through uh, and made some really smart moves. Um, I think Confan, Wednesday, uh, Campos, uh, and Ricky Ruiz all did a really good job of uh, figuring out the new new technology and how to use that to their advantage. Uh, I think all three of those candidates too. I mean, that's I think that's one of the story big stories of the night too was three young people of color uh, winning legislative races. I think it's going to really change the dynamics in the House at least. And Joe, what were some of those innovations that those candidates or others pursued? We've talked about texting. Of course, there is just mass texting and getting messages in folks on f- folks' phones. But were there other ways that people use text or other innovation that you saw come out of this tough time? I think using like I think I think sort of Zoom house parties. I think a lot of the folks who embrace the digital platform, mm-hmm. whatever it's Instagram or Facebook, to get to voters. Uh, I think that was really smart. You know, though, it's still, I mean, you're, it, I saw some interesting stuff. Do I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying, like, well, that was, that was, that was super effective. I, I mean, I think there was a lot. They, people just tried a lot of different crazy stuff, and some of it stuck. I hope we can talk in a couple of weeks when we start seeing the precinct data, because we have to turn out a little bit lower than it was in 2016. Uh, would love to see if we can make some, we can make some guesses now, but how that related turnout, to... Uh, go ahead. I mean, like, this is just the, the turnout stuff, though. I think you should just look at it. I mean, because it's also, like, but the raw number of votes was far higher. And I think because a lot of hmm. registration is still registering so much more people that, like, uh, in this time of COVID, like, I don't think our turnout was too terribly off-kilter from, uh, from where it could have been. And, and, yeah, and I wasn't even 
trying to pile on to oh, the overturn election. That's not my take. But I do wonder no. if the doctors did pretty well in state legislative races, or at least two of them did, uh, and yeah. and beating beating Lori Wimmer uh, in the in that West Hills race. Any other comments on state legislative primaries? Um, I think. Uh, um, I think the well, we represent we uh, in um, uh, House District thirty three. I think is was interesting. Uh, looks like Maxine Dexter uh, won, and our folks really liked her. We actually endorsed Sarah Bustle, who's our former one of our former members. Uh, like there, there was a lot of great people in that race, um, and so it'll be. Uh, but also, Doctor. Um, uh, but she's also a doctor who helped run her uh, association, uh, so uh, um, uh, at, at her uh, hospital, um, her healthcare center. So it'll be. Uh, I think she. I think she's going to be a really interesting legislator in the future. I also think looking at Washington County. Washington County. Uh, I think there was like a sea change a little bit. Um, Wednesday, Campos winning, uh, and Jeff Parker's old seat. Pete Lieber uh, beating Dick Scouten uh, for uh, Senator Hass's uh, old seat he's leaving. So uh, those are both those are both kind of big deals. Um, not the Washington County establishment folks uh, winning. So um, yeah, I think those that's, those are some interesting legislative races. Last reckon. last thing, at least I want to ask you about is the Clackamas County chair race. Jim Bernard wow. losing to Tootie Smith, and this is one that I he fear, really does not care for us. So that's like, <laughs> oh man, that I that I do fear got too little attention and too in, including oh, we, yeah. we covered it, but we didn't cover it probably enough. Yeah, I know for sure. I yeah, we should have done we should have done more of that race for sure. Is Clackamas yeah, County it, has there been has there been too little attention by progressive activists on Clackamas County over the last twenty years? For sure. How come? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's because like even though it's close, it's hard to get to. Like there's like part of it's that. I think part of it is Clackamas County is uh, really divided in a lot of different ways. A lot. It's very like you've got the north. Uh, the north part of it uh, can be it, it sort of bleeds into Portland a lot. Uh, some of the southern parts feel really distant. Um, you know, the stuff along I five is you know is a very different feel. It feels almost a little bit like Washington County. Uh, um, I that's my guess. Um, I also think that like the seats there in the legislative districts are are. You know, are the kind of swing, but not really anymore. They're becoming more and more ingrained. Um, so, I think there's just less attention in Clackamas County. Uh, it's also hard to win races there because it's countywide, um, and that makes it really expensive and also really hard to get uh, enough votes. So, like Washington County, Multnomah County. Uh, uh, county elections, Lane County are districted, and so you actually can communicate with voters more efficient, effectively. Uh, in Clackamas County, you're dealing with the whole county. Any other big takeaways? Any other disappointments for labor that you want to uh, that you want to offer? For all of labor, <laughs> there's so many. There's so many disappointments. <laughs> any any others that we didn't cover? Oh, any. Uh, uh, um, you know, 
I don't know. I think I think we were uh, in different places on a lot of races. So uh, yeah, no, I, I think I think accomplished it most of it. Well, Joe, my friend, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for your work. No problem. Talk to you later. Be well. Brian Clem, candidate for House District 21 representing Salem, talks with Jefferson Smith about the leadership of Mitch Greenlick, statewide race results, and new dynamics in Salem. Brian won his party primary last week and is on to the general election. On the phone right now, and we are by Zoom with Representative Brian Clem, who so far, just in the just in the couple of minutes that we've been on this Zoom call, right now he has got the GIMP uh, mask on. Just a moment ago, he was an avocado. Uh, he wants me. Oh, sorry, it's the Bane mask. It's the Bane mask. He, he was, uh, before an avocado, he was, in fact, a beaver. Uh, all I could see was his mouth and a beaver body. Uh, go Ducks. And it is a pleasure, though, still, although he's trying to play defense a little bit on the radio interview by trying to get my head. It's wonderful to have Brian Clem on the air right now. How you doing, man? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Now he's a, now he's a he turned himself into a duck face. First of all, I want to ask. I'm going to make it a little serious, real quick. Reflections on Mitch Greenlick. I loved Mitch. Um, you know, we had a little kind of um, you know we, we all knew that he was sick, and we had a little moment there in caucus during our March short session where we kind of talked with them and sort of said goodbye. You know, without directly saying goodbye it's like we hope you're you know you're going to recover but we we kind of heard and knew that it was pretty bad and it was very very touching um what i said to him uh was you are a honorary son of a and i want to be like you someday because he was so independent um and so clever i mean i just sometimes i just watch him just shred witnesses <laughs> like we had this guy from the suntan association joseph levy come in to basically say that it was not dangerous at all to be in tanning beds and mitch had the most the zingers on this guy were so fantastic you know the guy like said something about you know you could drown in a bathtub or you could drown in a teaspoon of water sure you could get cancer and mitch just said well I think um, in my statistics class, there was a there was a book called Li uh, Figures Lie and Liars Figure. And I think you just said that I could die from going out in the sun. And the guy was speechless. And he was just such a, he, he was kind of a titan of the house. He, he just, he just was awesome. So a lot of us had a little mini wake right afterwards on Zoom, had a drink that night and, uh, told Mitch stories. And Harriet, of course, was his partner in crime this whole time in the legislature and took care of him when he had, you know, pretty serious injury and could barely, could barely even vote. So she's got kids and family that are taking care of her and, and she'll be fine. But we, we love the Green Lakes greatly. Yeah, he was, uh, of the people in the, of the people in the legislature, and, and I haven't found sort of the best rhetorical architecture to describe it but the best I've come up with is uh, wisdom that, uh, of, of people that uh, I looked up to who seem to be guided by a moral center uh, more than uh, any sort of political calculation. Uh, I, is there any member, and I know it, there's a risk perhaps of uh, overstating the recently passed, uh, 
but was there any member who more exemplified following a, a moral North Star more than uh, power consideration than Representative Greenlee? You know, the only person who reminds me of kind of a young, a young Mitch Greenlick in that way is when Jeff Merkley was speaker. You know, both of them had a very independent take on the legislature. Both were far more interested in good government than often, unfortunately, people in power are. And they did things that, you know, benefited the minority party actually quite often just out of a sense of good governance. And um, sometimes they get ridiculed for it. Like Merkley had these things called the teamwork bill, where if two members of each party both sponsored a bill, you were guaranteed a, a work session, a, a, a public hearing and a vote on your bill. And that immediately got thrown out as soon as he was gone. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. I loved it. But Mitch would, you know, Mitch would speak up in caucus too for, he had been in minority, had been in the majority, believed in good government and, um, there's just not that many people who kept that independent streak and didn't just do sort of what was easiest to get their agenda done. And, you know, Mitch cared about actually process. And I, I was a member of his committee. And then we also served on the land use committee under Mary Nolan together. And, um, and I just loved it. He, he just, he was very stubborn. He was very, very stubbornly independent. And, and that's what I liked about it. Like he did not march to anybody else's drumbeat, that's for sure. As we now have the election in the rearview mirror, we now pretty much know the results. Any, I mean, I want to ask you about the Secretary of State's race uh, and some legislative races, but any uh, any races you were watching in particular, or anything that really surprised you, and that can include something locally in Salem, the, you know, include whatever you want, but yeah, anything that particularly surprised you. Um, honestly, I was really shocked that Mark Cass did as well as he did. Like, I, I went to bed hearing he had won. I was shocked. A few thousand votes ended up making the difference in that Secretary of State's race. Imagine those few thousand votes go the other way. And it wouldn't even have taken a few thousand. You flip 1,600 votes, mm -hmm. and that race goes the other way. What signal do you think other legislators, what signal do you think other sort of political watchers would have taken had Mark Hass pulled out the Secretary of State primary? Well, actually, there was lots of discussion that first night uh, where people thought he had in the next morning. Um, so the message that it's not totally dissuaded by, by that outcome at all, the fact that he even got so close combined with Schrader's, you know, big win, Ted Wheeler outpacing so much, it was that the more center portion of the Democratic Party uh, prevailed, you know, pretty handily across the board. And, you know, there was a big Bernie versus Biden thing a long time ago in, in COVID time, uh, you know, two months ago, that um, was a non-issue in Oregon. Um, and so you had moderates winning lots of races all over the place when there were two choices. So. I think the fact that Mark did as well as he did um, probably sends a message that a more moderate member is not automatically going to lose a primary, um, but that you still have to have, you know, a campaign resources because I think he probably got outspent overwhelmingly from from what I gathered. Um, I didn't look at their CNEs, but you know, campaign finance makes a big difference. If, if labor or others don't have such an outsized 
um, spending advantage in races, then I think the message is you can still win a primary even if you're a more moderate member. And I think that personally, I think that's a healthy thing. I don't think that it's, you know, we should not have a total purity test if we're going to be a big tent party. And let's talk about that campaign finance reform. The Supreme Court just said that states are allowed to do it. And so now there's going to be a debate in the state house and the state Senate about what that looks like in Oregon. It's going to be a, it's going to be a robust debate. And the, in this race, and sure enough, right. I was talking to, I uh, was talking to somebody who was making some of those financial decisions on donations and the cocktail napkin math that I got, if you add it up, they, I guess they weren't independent expenditures. They're in-kind contributions. We don't need independent expenditures right now because there are no statewide campaign finance limits until the Supreme Court rules that Measure 47 is law or until the legislature passes something uh, or until there's an initiative on the ballot statewide. Uh, but the cocktail napkin math is about three-quarters of a million dollars from public labor to Shamia. And, yeah, she outspent uh, Jamie and Mark by factor two to one. And, none of the, and by the way, I mean, for both of us, I mean, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a good heart-to-heart with Shamia on the air. Uh, I have a huge degree of, of respect and admiration for her. I think she was a fantastic candidate, uh, irrespective of, of any of this. But, but the money mattered, of course. And what do you think – the discussion is likely to be around campaign finance reform coming in the next session. Well, as you and I have talked a lot, um, I worry it's still going to be, being in the majority means you get a lot more money than when you're in the minority, no matter who it is. And I worry it's still gonna be the same forces that have been there for since I got there largely resisting um, campaign finance reform, but it's, I think, now essentially inevitable that there's going to be um, a plan. So it's not going to be no plan. You know, I mean, you and I have talked many times about, God, we need to do this uh, now while we're in charge because we're not going to have, you know, progressives aren't going to ever have the most money. So we need to change the rules now. Don't get used to the fact you're in charge and you can melt the lobby for money. You've got to change the rules and we just didn't do it. Then we lost a bunch of seats and now it's our chance again. Um, I think there will be, I just think it'll probably look probably something like the federal limits is my guess. You know, a couple thousand dollars per you know limit. The pushback is federal limits. Federal limits suck. Anybody thinks that the federal limits, uh, anybody looks at Congress already has the example of what a, what a decision-making body looks like under that regime. We can do better than that. Uh, I just set aside my journalism hat for a little advocacy. We're almost at the end of the interview. So I got, I got to lobby you a little bit. Uh, the budget. The, uh, the budget will be the biggest thing y'all talk about, right, coming in the session. It'll be oh, like yeah. the whole yeah. And one of the big decisions will be, uh, will there be just furlough days will there, or will there be service cuts? or will there be pay decreases? I just don't know, you know, if the feds come through with money, I don't know if there will be as big a problem as we originally thought. We do have like 1.6 billion in reserves. If the feds come through with more and we can use a lot of the reimbursements we have, it may not be as brutal as, as we think. The big issue is will the economy recover? And right now, Oregon is woefully behind every other state in trying to make sure small businesses survive 
And if they survive, there won't be as big a budget problems because they'll still be producing revenue. If they don't survive and all the chains basically get the economy, which is on Nightline last night, the big risk right now, if the chains all get all the money and our small business backbone deteriorates to nothingness, we're going to have massive budget problems for a really long time, not just like a one year. It's like, you know, 10 billion over the next three biennium is the projection. Now it'll be worse than that. Thanks to Joe and Brian for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Share it with a few friends. We got a Facebook page. So how can we fail? We got story ideas. Again, it's the local at xray.fm. We can be together while we're apart. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe, stay connected. And thank you, democracy. X-Ray.